Welcome to the Laws of the Game, a soccer law podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kate Porter. I'm an attorney, a partner at Vela Wood in Dallas, Texas. I joined Vela Wood about nine months ago, and I'm an attorney, and my practice focuses on international sports law and the resolution of sports disputes. I'm joined here by my co-host, Andrew Visnowski. How's it going, Kate? Hey, Andrew, how's it going? Great. My name is Andrew Wisnowski, as Kate said. I am also an attorney. I also provide sports management consulting services to sports clubs. I spent a couple years at the MLS League office, and my practice mainly revolves around the sport of soccer and player transfers and other sports governance matters in the soccer world. Great. So... As this is our first episode of Laws of the Game, you know, I wanted to give you a little bit of an overview of the podcast. We're going to be bringing you a podcast discussing the opera, the operation, the organization of soccer, both in the United States and all over the world, uh, and some of the major issues that are facing the beautiful game today. Right. So to start everything off, we've decided to discuss the uniqueness that soccer has in sports, especially when you consider North American sports. So we've titled this episode, How the Soccer World Works. And we're just going to dive into broadly how it's organized, who the major stakeholders are, and how the different competitions are managed and set up. Yeah. So let's talk about how soccer is organized. The game, because it is so international, is organized, I think, differently than most professional sports in the United States. And so because of this unique structure, or at least unique to Americans structure, I think there's a lot of confusion as to the different tournaments that are out there, the different competitions, and just how everything plays in with one another. So starting with just the basic overview of how international soccer is organized, it's organized on what's commonly referred to as the pyramid system. So if you think of a pyramid, right, at the very top is FIFA. And FIFA is the International Federation for Soccer. It's the worldwide governing body for the sport of soccer. Underneath that, you have these regional bodies called confederations. And interestingly, they're not members of FIFA. They're self-organized, but they're comprised of the next layer of the pyramid, which is the national associations. The national associations are both members of FIFA and the confederations. And then at the very bottom, you have the professional clubs. So if you look at it, it looks like a pyramid, right? You have FIFA at the very, very top, a handful of regional confederations, 211 national associations, and then countless clubs, both professional and amateur clubs. So if we take a look at FIFA, for starting off with FIFA, the very, very top of the pyramid. So FIFA, as I mentioned, is the international governing body of soccer. It's charged with overseeing the game of soccer on a global level. FIFA has been around now for well over 100 years. It was established in 1904. It's now headquartered in Switzerland. And FIFA is a, an association made up of 211 national association members. One of the things that I always find interesting is that the there are more national associations members of FIFA than there are UN-recognized countries. And that's because, for example, the four countries that comprise the United Kingdom all have their own national associations. So there's a separate national association for England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. And then there's other entities that have their own national countries that have their own national association, but aren't UN recognized independent countries. So Puerto Rico is one. 
There's certain other Caribbean nations that are not recognized. They're recognized as overseas territories. I believe Guam is also mm-hmm. one. U.S. Exactly. Virgin Islands. A bunch of the Dutch Caribbean islands mm-hmm. may be recognized, but they also might be recognized by CONCACAF and not FIFA, which we'll get into later. I mean, it's interesting. You have more member associations of FIFA than you actually have UN-recognized countries. Right. So when we talk about the rules of the game, you usually assume that FIFA is in charge of all of that. But the actual laws of the game that happens on the pitch is organized by a different entity that's called IFAB. IFAB was initially established by the home nations of the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland, which later became Northern Ireland, who basically set out to standardize and codify the game. When we talk about the laws of the game, we're talking about the basic playing rules. So the offsides rule, the number of players on a pitch or on a field, that's all determined and standardized by IFAB. Right. The size of the pitch, the size of the goals whether or not you can use netting in goals, all of that stuff is covered by IFAB. FIFA joined IFAB in 1913, so the organization of IFAB is a little extra interesting because you have the four British quote-unquote home nations have a vote, and then FIFA has a vote and a deciding vote, has veto power, I believe, and FIFA represents the other 207 national associations in that decision-making. FIFA itself obviously organizes a number of international tournaments, both for international representative teams and club teams. Obviously, the two that are the most popular sporting events in the world are the Men's World Cup and the Women's World Cup. And we'll be bringing you an episode later on in the series focusing on the anatomy of the World Cup. So we'll have an episode talking about the bidding and the hosting of the World Cup and how that comes to be, that process qualification, how teams qualify for the World Cup, sponsorship issues, ambush marketing, which is another major concern for FIFA and sponsors at these tournaments, and other matters related to the competition. So stay tuned. Yeah. On a personal note, I find ambush marketing fascinating and hilarious and a really good exercise of of companies' creativity and ability to sort of walk the line on rules. But that aside, FIFA also organizes a bunch of other international tournaments for different representative teams and club teams and different codes of soccer. So they have the Beach Soccer World Cup, the Futsal World Cup, and then they also organize the Youth World Cups, U17, U20, U22. And then they obviously are the organizing body of soccer within the Olympic movement. So they organize the soccer competitions at the Summer Olympic Games. FIFA does not do a lot of organization on the club side, although they do organize the club World Cup and they have discussed expanding the international club tournament to something that's a little bit more substantial. But at the moment, the club World Cup involves all of the champions of the Confederation club tournaments like the UEFA Champions League, CONCACAF Champions League, etc. Exactly. Taking a look at how FIFA's run and what's their internal management structure. So FIFA's run by what is essentially a board of directors, if you were to compare this to a major corporation, and it's called the FIFA Council. FIFA Council members, there's 37 of them, and they're generally elected from each of the regional confederations. So again, while the confederations themselves are not members of FIFA, there's a substantial relationship there. 
So as I mentioned, there's 37 members of the council, and this is an expanded group in, I guess, about 10 years ago, there was something called the FIFA Executive Committee, which is a smaller group of individuals who ran or who you know served at the bo- on the board of soccer, international soccer. And due to a number of reasons, including allegations of corruption, they've expanded who is on this, this FIFA council. They've renamed it now to the FIFA council. It's no longer the Executive Committee. So there are eight FIFA vice presidents. So you have one senior vice president, and currently he is from the AFC, which is the Asian Football Confederation, the regional body of Asia. You have three vice presidents from UEFA, which is the European governing body or the European Regional Confederation. One vice president from each of the African, North American, South American, and Oceania football confederations. So the CAF, CONCACAF, COMEBOL, and OFC will dive into to these acronyms later, and you'll hear them a lot during the course of this podcast. And then you also have 28 members of the council. So there's six each from the Asian Football Confederation from Europe and from Africa, four each from North and South America, and then two from Oceania. So you have the FIFA council, and then the FIFA president acts almost like the chairman of the board. Again, if we're doing this corporation analogy, he is elected by the Congress. So the 211 member associations come together once a year. And every few years, they elect a new FIFA president or reelect the existing FIFA president. And then you also have a FIFA secretary general who, in many respects, acts as a CEO. So she's more involved in the day-to-day operations of the FIFA, and she's appointed by the FIFA council. Right. And so anything that involves the FIFA Congress, whether it be a vote or anything like that, is based off of a one national association to one vote basis. So China that has over a billion population has the same say in the FIFA Congress as say Gibraltar, whose population I assume is probably around 30,000 to 20,000. That's just a fun fact I wanted to throw out there. Yes. (laughs) So if we want to continue on this corporate governance analogy, FIFA's essentially bylaws are governed by are the FIFA statutes, which governs everything that FIFA does and how they make their decisions. The statutes are essentially the constitution of FIFA and set out the basic laws for world football and include rules for different competitions, rules for transfers, rules for anti-doping, and a host of other regulatory concerns. The changes to the FIFA statute may only be made by the FIFA Congress and require a three-quarter vote of all of the associations present and eligible to vote. FIFA also, in addition to the statutes, has other rules and regulations that expand on those statutes. Most notably are the FIFA regulations on the status and transfer of players, the FIFA RSTP, which provides basically a framework to normalize and unify the international transfer market and gives rules to govern how those transfers work between players moving between clubs in different national associations. Yeah. And, you know, we'll have a few episodes where we talk about the international transfer of players, the domestic transfer of players. And particularly when we talk about how U.S. soccer is organized, we'll come back to the RSTP, the regulations on the status and transfer of players, because it is second to these statutes, probably the most important document that FIFA publishes and the most 
widely discussed, widely relied upon, and serves as probably the core of many disputes that arise in the soccer world. Absolutely. There's also a handful of other regulations that are promulgated by FIFA that manage the regulations of the game. That includes the FIFA Code of Ethics, the FIFA Disciplinary Code, the FIFA Governance Code, and the FIFA Anti-Doping Regulations. They also publish rules for specific tournaments. There are specific rules for each FIFA World Cup, including dispute resolution and arbitration rules, and various marketing and sponsorship guidelines to promote and sponsor those competitions. FIFA also periodically sends out various insights and information that are that are disseminated through circulars, which FIFA will distribute to all of their member associations. Generally, these circulars sort of expound on the existing rules and give explanations for how to apply those rules. One of the most important ones that I generally deal with is the circular relating to training rewards, which which includes training compensation and solidarity mechanism contributions, which is a mouthful to say. But they, it basically sets out the amount of money that these rewards can bring in for each club and the basis for the calculation of those awards. Right. And again, another preview of what's to come in this series. You know, when Andrew talks about training compensation and solidarity mechanism, there are rules put in place that allow clubs that contribute to the training of a player, a youth player, an amateur player, even a professional player, they're able to, when that player moves abroad to a new country, a new club, he or the clubs that train him are entitled to receive a, a portion of that transfer fee. And that system has actually done wonders for certain clubs. I think it was Anthony Marshall, who plays for Manchester United now, his boyhood club received a portion of his transfer fee when he moved to Manchester United, and they were able to build, I don't know, as a new pitch or, or something like that. You know, these mechanisms are actually quite important to some of the youth and smaller clubs that are out there to help them maintain and even improve their facilities and their operations. Right. And I think going back to what we were saying about the various regulations, those training rewards regulations are within are encompassed within the FIFA RSTP. So it just shows how important that specific set of rules are and how these circulars sort of help the wider body of people that are bound by or working within the FIFA framework to understand the rules and to work within them. Exactly. So, I mean, if we were to talk about what does the body of law look like or the regulations and law that looks like for at the FIFA level, because there are national association rules and regulations and confederation rules and regulations, which we'll touch on briefly later. But you're talking about the statutes, you're talking about the RSTP, you're talking about the code of ethics that might be relevant depending on actions or disputes that arise. The disciplinary code might come into effect. The governance code, if you're talking about how certain national associations are governed, you also have arbitration decisions or dispute resolution decisions that are either issued by FIFA or the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is an independent arbitration uh, arbitral institution that, that handles appeals from FIFA decisions and will talk about this later in the series as well. But I mean, there, there is a huge body of what are the rules and the regulations that govern the game, not necessarily on the pitch, but all of the off the pitch interactions. So it's actually right. quite a large and profound universe of information that's out there and rules and regulations and, and how the game is structured. And I think that's partially because 
There's a need for uniformity when you have 211 member associations of organizations that come from all over the world and may have different perspectives to dealing with basic things just like employment contracts. So there's some standardization that's needed, and FIFA has done that. And I think we've even seen it in the past five or 10 years, a push to become even more transparent and publishing clear guidance for the national associations as they implement rules in their respective countries. Right. And I think this goes to something that people in our line of work and our profession talk about a lot is like, what is sports law? What is this idea of Lex Sportiva? And I think in the United States, it gets really muddied because we'll talk a lot about a lot of things that involve the law and different aspects of sports, right? Like we talk about how when athletes are having are faced with criminal charges, we talk about when there's a civil suit between a club and a patron for personal injuries, right? But I think the idea of what sports law is, to me especially, is the way by which these governing bodies regulate themselves and organize themselves in a way that sort of unifies the sport in a global context. So you see that with the RSTP, you see that with the FIFA statutes, and that really is the meat of what sports law is, is these regulations that govern the sport and almost act as their own laws, internal laws in a way, because they they're not bound by normal legal jurisdictions. Everything in FIFA is international. Everything is global. So to normalize it and to make it function properly at a global level, they have to set out their own rules and regulations to get it to work properly and work smoothly. Totally. So we will tackle these as best we can in later episodes, particularly when we talk about certain topics like the international transfer of a player. We'll talk about the rules and the regulations that apply. So moving away from FIFA, so we've talked about the top of the pyramid, FIFA standing by itself. Underneath it, um, and I've mentioned this name, uh, the, this word a bunch, is are the confederations. So those are the regional governing bodies of soccer. There are six confederations in the world. You have UEFA, U-E-F-A, that is uh, the governing body of soccer in Europe. CONCACAF, which is North and Central America and the Caribbean. COMEBOL, which is South America. The AFC, which is the Asian Football Confederation, uh, CAF or CAF, that's from Africa. That's the regional confederation from Africa. And the OFC um, from Oceania. As I mentioned, confederations, the members of the confederations, again, are the national associations, but the national associations from that region, with some exceptions. So, for example, one of the most notable exceptions, Australia. So Australia is a member of the Asian Football Confederation and not Oceania. Australia made the switch 15, 20 years ago in order to be more competitive. They wanted to improve their chances of qualifying for the World Cup, and Asia has more World Cup qualifying spots. And so it made the request and switched confederations. So now Australia is a member of the AFC and not the OFC. Israel is another example. So Israel, located in Asia, is a member of UEFA, the European governing body of soccer, and that's mostly given or due to the regional tensions in the Middle East. And so because of that, Israel joined the European Confederation as a member of that confederation, whereas its neighbors, Palestine, for example, is a member of the Asian Football Confederation. So they don't face each other as often, 
you know, Palestine will play in Asian competitions, Israel plays in European competitions, and neither a national association tends to qualify for the World Cup. So they don't face each other. Many former Soviet countries, so Azerbaijan, for example, um, are members of UEFA, even though they're located in Asia. And that's due to the fact that Russia is a member of the European Confederation, UEFA. And so when the Soviet Union split up, the countries that used to form part of the USSR, many of them stayed in Europe as opposed to moving over to the Asian Football Confederation. Suriname, Guyana, and French Guinea, while they're located geographically in South America, they're actually members of CONCACAF, so the North, North and Central American and Caribbean Soccer Association, because they're more closely aligned with the Dutch, English, and French colonies in the Caribbean. Like I said, there's some exceptions to the fact that these are the members of each confederation are the countries that are in that region. The regional confederations will also organize their own championships held every two or four years, depending on the confederation. So UEFA, the European governing body, they or UEFA organizes the Euros. That happens every four years, usually in the middle of a World Cup cycle. So if the World Cup's held in 2022, normally the Euros would be held in 2024. The Euros are the most popular of the regional confederation championships, comprised of the European National Associations. CONCACAF organizes the Gold Cup. This is typically held every two years, usually one in three years behind or, or after a World Cup. So there will be a 2023 Gold Cup and a 2025 Gold Cup, if I can do math correctly. Yes. The final for the 2023 Gold Cup will be at SoFi Stadium, nice. by the way. Yeah. Should be a good time. And then Comebol organizes the Copa America. So it's that held every four years. And some confederations invite national associations from other confederations to compete. So Comebol has only, I think, 12 members, if I'm not mistaken, 10 or 12 members. So it usually invites one or two national associations from other confederations to participate, usually Mexico and another country. It had been Japan for a number of years. I think the last one was Qatar. Had played in the Comebol Copa America, mostly just to round out the numbers. Yeah. And Qatar also played in the latest edition of the Gold Cup. Yeah. Because they're hosting the World Cup and didn't have a lot of natural competitive games because they had already automatically qualified for the World Cup. Like you said before, Kate, the confederations aren't necessarily members, aren't members of FIFA. And because of that, there are some members, member associations of confederations that are not members of FIFA. A good example of this was Gibraltar for a while was a member of UEFA. I don't know why I keep bringing up Gibraltar, but they were a member of UEFA and not a member of FIFA. So they would compete in all of the UEFA competitions and not compete in any FIFA qualifying or FIFA related competitions. In CONCACAF, it's similar. A lot of French overseas territories, which are part of fully part of France, their own equivalent of a national association is actually a branch of the French Federation, but they are, those branches are members of CONCACAF. So they will compete, say, in the Gold Cup, but won't compete in World Cup qualifying or the World Cup because all of those players for FIFA-related competitions would be eligible for France. Right. So you guys got it. It's totally straightforward and easy to remember. <laughs> Very normal. And also there's eligibility issues that we're going to talk about in a bit where if they play for France, they might not be eligible to play for their 
CONCACAF only teams, but if they play for their CONCACAF only national associations, they might still be able to play in FIFA competitions for France. So lots of fun nuances here. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing this. But to talk more about the overlap between FIFA and these confederations, the one thing where they are involved with FIFA-related, more directly involved with FIFA-related activity is that they are responsible for organizing the qualifying tournaments for the World Cup. So each confederation has its own format to determine who qualifies for the World Cup, and FIFA decides and grants each confederation with a certain number of spots for the World Cup. So for the 2022 men's tournament, the qualifying positions, the qualifying slots are 13 for UEFA Europe, five for CAF, which is Africa, four and a half, which I'll talk about in a second, for AFC Asia, half a spot for OFC Oceania, three and a half spots for CONCACAF, and four and a half spots for Common Ball. So for the half spots, Andrew, they just like send half a team? <laughs> yes. The <laughs> No. So those half spots basically mean that those teams that qualify in those half spots get a play-in game, essentially, similar to what they do in the NCAA tournament, but it's not part of the big dance, so to speak. So there's usually a match that's played. I think the all the qualifying matches this time around were actually played in Qatar. So the South American half spot and the AFC half spot will play in a play-in game. And whoever wins that game will then take the entire spot. And then the half spot for CONCACAF and the half spot for OFC will play in a playing in game and whoever wins that will take the full slot. These qualification numbers, Kate, as you sort of laid out, is why Australia moved confederations. It would basically just run the table against all of the OFC teams and then basically have to play a play-in game against either a South American team or a North American team, which makes it much harder. Whereas if they were in Asia... They could, depending on how they qualify, lock in a spot without having to play a, a one-off win-or-go-home type game to qualify for the World Cup. Exactly, yeah. So we've talked about the confederations. We've talked about FIFA. Let's move to the next layer of the pyramid, which are the national associations. The national associations are the governing bodies for sport in each country. And as I mentioned a few times, there are 211 currently 211 FIFA-recognized national associations. Additionally, as I mentioned, some of the national associations, Puerto Rico, for example, has its own national association, even though it's a U.S. territory. And again, the four, national, the four countries, the home countries of the United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales all have their own national association, which is kind of interesting because FIFA organizes the soccer tournament at the Olympic Games too. And on the Olympic level, Great Britain competes as one nation. Right. And so what you have at the Olympic Games is you'll have a team Great Britain that'll play in the Olympic Games if it qualifies that is comprised of members mostly from England, although some members of Wales and the other home nations do make the team. And so it's one of the kind of the rare instances in which you see players from the various countries that comprise the United Kingdom competing for Great Britain and Team Great Britain. 
Yeah. And the interesting part of that is they have to, the British Olympic Committee has to designate a specific governing body to manage those teams. And it winds up being the English FA that is in charge of Team GB for those Olympic representative teams. And also, interestingly, Puerto Rico, even though it is a part of the United States and has its own National Association for Soccer, also has its own National Olympic Committee. So while Team GB is sort of an amalgamation of all those um, home nations in the Olympics, Puerto Rico would be completely separate in the Olympics as well, which which is sort of an example of how autonomous the different sports governing bodies are when they organize and how much different it can be in those different universes. So since this is a soccer law podcast and we are Americans and use the word soccer, it probably makes sense to dive into what the U.S. Soccer Federation looks like and how it's organized. I will say that the U.S. Soccer Federation is really unique in world football just by nature of how soccer developed in this country. But just to start with the basics, the U.S. Soccer Federation is a national association that governs soccer in the United States, mainly governs soccer in the 50 U.S. states. Each of the populated U.S. territories have their own national association. So American Samoa, Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico all have their own national associations. But all the people from those territories are U.S. citizens, so are also eligible to compete for U.S. soccer. The USSF was formed in 1913 and was one of the early members of FIFA and the first from the North American, Central American, and Caribbean region of CONCACAF. Their headquarters are in Chicago, and they're basically responsible for all soccer activities in the United States. That means a lot of things. The biggest is establishing a men's and women's national team, youth youth national team, Olympic team, and Paralympic national team. That's sort of the standard in U.S. law for these sports governing bodies to be recognized under the Olympic movement and with the U.S. Olympic Committee. They sanction professional soccer in the United States that falls within the FIFA pyramid, and they also sanction the professional soccer leagues in the United States that fall within the FIFA pyramid, which I'll get into in a second. I mean, when we talk about sanctioning professional soccer games, let me give you an example of what we're talking about. The you know, Every summer, there, there tends to be tours that particularly European clubs will embark upon worldwide tours, but also South American clubs will do it as well. Well, they'll come to the United States or come to different countries where they don't normally play, but they have a fan base and they'll organize and host matches. And so when a team from another confederation or a national association and confederation come to play in the United States, the U.S. Soccer Federation and also CONCACAF have a right to sanction those matches and to collect sanctioning fees to be able to play those matches. So Manchester United and Barcelona, when they come to the United States as part of their preseason tour, there is a match agent who will arrange that match for them, pay the clubs a fee to come play. The match agent will then pay U.S. Soccer Federation and CONCACAF a sanctioning fee. And then the match agent keeps the ticket sales and concession money and either keeps that or distributes also to the host of the match, the stadium. So U.S. Soccer Federation is involved in those matches as well. 
and ensuring that the, the facility is proper, that there's insurance and all of that. So that's one of the major things. And it's led to the right of U.S. Soccer Federation to charge a sanctioning fee is, is something that has led to disputes in the United States. And we can talk about that in later episodes as well. Right. And it should be noted that there is a lot of soccer that happens that in the U.S. that is not sanctioned by U.S. soccer, mainly being soccer organized at the college and university and high school level. All of those are organized by the NCAA and the various state athletic associations that govern high school and academic sports. They're not under the purview of U.S. soccer. They are not part of the FIFA pyramid. And because of that, sometimes they will operate under different rules. The best example, I think, is probably NCAA soccer has a very different substitution rule. You're the college soccer expert, but I believe that the clock would go up and not Mm -hmm. down. Yep. It's a countdown clock. Yes. Yes. And... For a while, if you were subbed out in the first half, you could be subbed back in in the second half. It's almost a different sport in a way, but that is by virtue of the fact that the NCAA is not a member of FIFA and continues to operate those college games. And those players are not necessarily considered members like playing for a breakaway league, which we'll talk about breakaway leagues too, because they're still usually members of a team or an association that's affiliated with U.S. soccer outside of their college sport. But when talking about U.S. soccer and the organization of U.S. soccer, it's really important to keep in mind that there are these very large governance apparatuses of soccer that aren't associated or affiliated with FIFA, which is really unique in terms of global soccer. And then I guess the final part of the USSF's mandate for governance is to sanction professional leagues in the United States and sanction the professional club game in the United States. They do this in two ways. One is by organizing the standards for professional divisions, both on the men's and women's side. Major League Soccer is the top men's league in MLS. The National Women's Soccer League is the top women's league in the U.S., but there's also lower division leagues for men lower division professional leagues for men's and women's soccer. You have USL, USL League One. MLS now has a third division league called the MLS Next Pro. There's another third division league called NISA on the men's side. On the women's side, the USL has two leagues. One is semi-professional, which is called the W League, and they are also launching a second division professional league called the USL Super League. In addition to those professional leagues, the USSF is also required to organize the US Open Cup, which is essentially the American version of the FA Cup, which allows all of basically all of the teams within the pyramid to compete in an elimination tournament. And it's one of the few um, sporting institutions in the US where the amateur level and all of the different levels of professional sports or professional teams in soccer directly compete against each other for a trophy. So that brings us to the end of our first episode, which is the first part of how the soccer world works, where we've touched on the organization of soccer on an international level and how the pyramid system works. 
tune in for the next episode or the second half of How the Soccer World Works, where we'll talk about club soccer, which is different in many respects from international national team soccer. And we will talk about that on the next episode. And then going forward, we have a number of really interesting podcasts planned for you where we talk about the transfer, international transfer of players, the domestic transfer of players in the United States. We will have a World Cup episode, The Road to the World Cup, talking about the organization and the planning and how the World Cup comes to be. We'll talk about roster rules in the MLS, anti-doping, salary caps, promotion and relegation. So there's a lot of really interesting content that we have for you in later episodes. So we hope you tune in again. The Velawood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawoodlaw.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at velawoodlaw.com.